0: let's uh, go ahead and get started in prayer father thanks for this day you've granted and thank you for bringing us out safely to your house to study your word i pray that you'd open our hearts and minds that we may understand your truth in christ's name amen, amen. okay we're working through the doctrine of the church ecclesiology this is the fourth week and we're going to look at the purpose and pictures of the church and we're probably not going to finish it this day you know the whole um set here but uh we'll finish it up next week What is the purpose of the church? We've already hit a little bit about this as we've been uh, going through our introductory materials. We're going to look at it uh, a couple of different ways. Negatively, the purpose of the church is not to save the world. What do we mean by that? What do we mean we're not to save the world? Does that mean we're not to save people? We're not to evangelize? Right, it's not our institutional goal. It's not what God left us here to do—to save the world in a sense of the world system, right? Because what do we know about the world system? Is it for or against God? Against. It's against God, and it's always going to be against God. Um, we're not here to save the world. We're not here to um, save our society. And that's one of the great things that we've been debating here a little bit in the last three weeks: is what is the role of a Christian in society? Well, we're to be salt and light. We're to be an influence. We're to um, share the gospel. We're to be an example of what God is. But Jesus Christ did not come to save the Roman Empire. He did not come to um, foment a rebellion. He did not come to take over at that time. What he did is he came over to preach the word, to preach the gospel, to share the good news of salvation. And that's our job. It's not to serve the world. What do we mean by that? Um, Now, this is a big argument, and I could get in a lot of trouble here talking about this. But there are some churches that think that, well, what we need to do is we really need to get so involved in the world that we're doing all these kind of good things for the world in a sense of charitable things, feeding the poor, feeding the hungry, all that kind of stuff. And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But as we've discussed the past couple of weeks, when that becomes the reason for you to be here and you forget about evangelism, you forget about the spiritual component... What happens is you fall into the trap that happened to the churches back in the turn of the 1900s. Where you had a lot of mainline denominational churches say, look, we really need to get involved in social issues. And we've been talking about the spiritual stuff for so long. We need to get involved in our communities. We need to help our communities. And what happens is then that becomes the overarching driver for what you do. It's not the evangelism. It's can I help my community. And you lose track of what you're really here for. Does that all make sense to you? Yes. All right. Thank you. I'll give you your dollar after class. All right. Make that five. All right. <laughs> Wait a minute. We said dollar early. All right. You changed it. No. Um, yeah. And and that's the, that's the great struggle that we have as as believers. On one hand, we want to be a positive influence in our society, but if we just clean up our society and we never share the good news, have we really accomplished anything? No. All right. I, I, I remember someone saying, what, it doesn't matter what side of the abortion debate you're on. If you're not a believer, what's your eternity look like?
1: Ground.
0: Yeah. Not a very good one, is it? No. It doesn't matter which side of the homosexuality debate you're on. If you're not a Christian, where do you go? Eternity. You go to hell. Um, that's not why we're here. Now, we should be an influence in those areas, but that's not the purpose for our existence as a church. So should we be good citizens in our community? Should we participate in good deeds? Should we do the things? Yeah, we are. That's part of it. But that's not why we're here. We do that as a byproduct of our faith, not to try and just clean it up. It's, it's why are you doing it? That's the question. Why are you doing what you're doing? If you're doing it as a means of evangelism, as a means of furthering the gospel, that's one thing. If you're doing it as that is the means in and of itself, then what happens is you fall into the trap that the church fell into in the early 1900s when you had a wholesale shift into what we call modernism, where you don't need to worry about the pie, you know, the, the pie in the sky by and by. You've got to worry about the here and now. And when you lose sight of that, you've lost the message of the church. It's not to rule the world. We already talked about this a little bit. The church is not here to rule this planet. Now, again, there are some, um, some branches of Christianity that that is why they're here. Um, we call it, if you go out and do a web search on dominion theology, the idea there is as believers, we are given dominion over the world, so we should exercise our dominion, and we need to take over the world for Jesus. Um, The darkest periods in human history is when the church ran the world. And when was that? Middle Ages. That was the darkest period in history. We're not here to rule the world. Now, someday is that going to happen? Yeah, but who's going to set it up? Christ is, not us. (laughs) Jesus Christ will take care of that when the time comes. In the meantime, that's not our purpose. That's not why we're here. Yeah. both okay. both yeah it was both alright but um well here's the problem and I don't want to get too, too on this too much but back you know 1200 1100 1300 you had one choice in most parts of Europe you're either Catholic or you weren't and um, you couldn't be anything else and to be anything else would be to sign your own death warrant I mean they would come and kill you um, there was no religious freedom was, you couldn't even ask a question Without being in danger of hellfire in that time, so they stifled all, all of that. So that was a dark period, but it was also dark for other reasons. You're right. Um, it's not to fight the world. This, this is very important. We're not out here to fight the world. Now, what happens in a lot of times as Christians, we want to take on the world. We we look out there and we see something like, um, I don't know, pick pick a, pick an ill homosexuality. Where it's becoming almost a normal kind of thing. And we, we find that revolting. We, we find that you know, against the scripture. That's something that God calls it an abomination. All right, And so what we want is we want to take that on. Well, let me ask a question. What is the world supposed to be doing? What they're doing. And what do they do? They are sin. Pigs oink, dogs bark, sinners sin. Okay. That's what, the church, that's what the world does. And what we want to make careful of is, is, on one hand, we need to positively proclaim the truth of the word of God. Yeah, homosexuality is a wrong thing. But when we take it upon our mark that we're going to stamp out homosexuality, we're going to stamp out this, we're going to, we're going to frontally assault this evil in society, we lose sight of what we're here for. Because what do we do? We make the mission field the enemy. understand that's the mission field out there that that's the people you want to reach now if they ask you what do you think about homosexuality well tell them don't be afraid of that don't run and hide but my purpose here is not to create an anti-gay movement or an anti-abortion movement or an anti-whatever movement that's not why I'm here I'm here to evangelize the lost I'm here to tell them about Christ, I'm here to give them hope. And you see that with Christ, right? Did Christ um, implement an anti-colosseum movement? Did he implement an anti-slavery movement? That's not what he did, right? Now, ultimately, did it? Did Christianity end slavery? Well, yeah, it did. That was that was a byproduct, but that's not the purpose. And that's what I'm trying to get. And and, and I don't want you to be confused on this. Yeah
2: a line in front of Is
0: Personally you want to ask my opinion? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, That's my personal so understanding. I was gonna say too with um the grace of Jesus, well, when we
3: look at the grace of Jesus, I mean we can have our morals, I mean Jesus stood for what he stood for, but he
0: always <coughs> displayed grace. He right.
3: Right. I don't go and say, you know, you're going to hell because you're gay. I say... You're going to hell because you're lost. <laughs> right. I love you, you know? and how can I serve you? Right. And I mean, those are opportunities in our life to show
0: the grace and love and mercy of God. And see, that's where the church wins. The church does not win by taking on the world because we're not going to be able to beat it. Exactly. All right? We're not going to be able to beat the world. And and that's not why we're here. We're here to display the love of Christ. We're here to, that doesn't mean we don't have strong moral standards, right? Right. We, ha- we do have those. But like if you're working with someone at work who is living with their boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever, instead of beating them over the head with a morality that they don't understand, or show them the love of Christ. They understand if they don't like what you're saying. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean you compromise your stand, right? You don't compromise it. You don't tell them it's the right thing to do, but you don't beat them on the head with a Bible every time they walk into the room. Because that's what sinners do. How did Christ respond? You realize everybody around Christ was a worse sinner than he was? (laughs) Think about that. He was perfect. He was the only perfect person. And yet, how did he treat the woman who came, the prostitute who came and washed his feet with the ointment? How, how did he treat the sinners he ran into? With grace. The ones he really beat on were who? The Pharisees. Yeah, the religious muckety-mucks that didn't need anything, you know. But, but our, our job here, we're not to fight the world. When we start fighting the world, all right, we create a barrier to the gospel that should not be there. If they hate us, make sure they hate us because of our message, not because we're obnoxious. And unfortunately, I've run into Christians over the years that are obnoxious. You know, they have this morality, they're better than anybody else, and it turns people off. All right, And although they're right in their moral stance, although they're right maybe in, in what they believe, the way they come across puts a damper on their effectiveness for Christ, because people see them as just, well, you're against everything. Christians hate this, they hate that, they're against this, they're against that. And no one ever sees a Christian smiling. We're always going around with a perpetual frown. You know, we don't need to do that. You don't need to fight the world. I've got a lot of pagans in my life. And they act like pagans. When I go out and eat lunch with them, they they order a beer. That's fine. I'm not going to lose sleep on that. Now, the church I came from, that was horrible that I would even associate with such people. Well, let me ask a question. How can you reach the world if you don't associate with it? You don't become it, right? Did Christ become? No. No. But yet the Pharisees, they're constantly bragging on Christ because why? Well, you eat with the tax collectors and the sinners. And what did Christ say? Well, the sick, don't, the sick are the ones that need help, right? Not the healthy guys. And you guys think you're healthy. That's your problem. You think you're healthy, but you're not. We're not to fight the world. We should be when people see Open Door and they see us, they should see people who care about the community, who love the Lord, who are not out on picket lines or not out trying to, you know, to, to just stir up trouble, but people who genuinely exhibit a love for Christ. And if they ask us what we believe, we can tell them graciously without condemning them for it. All right? That's not our job to condemn people. Um, People know where I stand at work on things, but, you know, I'm not around They're saying you ought to do this, you ought to do that. You're, they're pagans. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to act like it, right? And one of the problems that we have as Christians, if we've been Christians for a long period of time, we have this idea that everybody should act like we do. We, everybody should be Christian. Well, they're not. Our society is not Christian. We can't expect them to act like that. And that's not our fight. Our fight is to win the souls of men. And you don't do that by becoming their enemy. Did Christ become the enemy to people? No, because who flocked to him? Who flocked to Christ? The religious boys? The tax collectors? The sinners? The common folk? And why did they uh, why did they come to Christ? Because he didn't kick them out of his presence. Remember when he went to eat lunch with the Pharisee and the Pharisee said if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't have anything to do. And Christ knew it was in the guy's heart and he uh, went right after him, didn't he? Now, that'd freak you out. <laughs> but what is Christ trying to say there? We're here to reach the world. You don't reach them by being their enemy. Now, if by your stand they, they, don't, they hate you, well, that's a different issue. But not because you're obnoxious about it. That's, that's the point. It's not to imitate the world. This is important. We're not to be like the world. We're not to act like the world. We're not to think like the world. And why is that? We're not of the world. world. And is the world friends or enemies of God? The The enemy of God. So when people look at us and they look at the average pagan and they can't tell much difference because we all have the same values, we're all chasing the same stuff, what is that telling them? We're the same. We're not to have the values of the world. What does the world value? What does the world want? Money, prestige, fame, glory. And the entertainment, right? If we're, if we're chasing the entertainment of the world. Now, does that mean you're not allowed to go to a concert? No, I love smooth jazz. I like going to smooth jazz concerts. All right? What are you laughing at? <laughs> You're probably a rock and roll kind of guy. See, so you go to the Ben Jovi, that's probably what you're doing. Um, yeah. Bon Jovi or whatever. Ben Jovi. See, I don't even know the name. That's, that's bad. Yeah. I don't even know what he, what he, what's his name. But uh, we're not to imitate the world. There's to be a difference between us and the world, right? When people see us, they should see somebody with different values because we belong to a different kingdom. This world isn't all there is, and we act like this world is all there is. We're not giving them much of the contrast, are we? I
2: was just WCRS the other
1: day, and um, Elton John said that Jesus Christ came. Gave... Yeah. What? Yeah, he lived with a
0: bunch men. Well, Elton John has more problems than than you can talk about here. Yeah.
4: Yeah. So, I say that to say when I was still at Oberlin, the Lord chose to, through the grapevine, send people to me for counseling who specifically were having issues with their same-sex partner. Mm -hmm. And I handled it in such a way that that person began to rethink and never ever, because State crap. <laughs> I never witnessed mm-hmm. in an obvious over way, but the grace with which I handled the situation, calling uh, caused the individual to rethink. And I don't know if she ever, but I think she did at mm-hmm. some point move away from that. But she referred some similar other friends to me, and so forth, um, and the thing is grace works honey works better than vinegar you know and furthermore it there was a dividing line because there was this one incident where people were going to gather together in a support group protest march speak out thing in favor of you know the gay agenda and you were to wear a certain colored ribbon to depict that you were in support of of that. And I didn't wear the ribbon and I didn't go to the speak out thing, but that's different from when somebody comes Mm -hmm. to you for help, being gracious and loving. I mean, Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus and the, you know, rejects. So it's like there is a fine line between the grace and the love that should come from you versus the overt rah-rah for you. Yeah,
0: and that's a fine line that we have to, to walk. Don't become obnoxious to the world. You have a moral stand, I have a moral stand. We have convictions. We need to hold to those convictions. But on the other hand, we're to exhibit the grace of Christ. And the other thing here, I think... When I was growing up, the the idea I'm witnessing is that you go for the kill. You know, you're going to go in and you're going to share the gospel and you're going to get a decision. You're going to go for the kill on the first shot, all right? That's really not what evangelism is about. What is evangelism? Evangelism is moving people closer to the point of decision, right? And sometimes your job is not to go in for the kill and sometimes you're there when they do make that commitment for Christ. But a lot of times it's just moving them one step closer maybe. Moving them, helping them to see Christ in you and to be drawn to the Savior that we serve. And, and as time goes on, they're, 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 they may come to know Christ. They may not. But at least you can positively influence them towards the Savior, not away from the Savior. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's to let the love of Christ show through us. Like it says in Corinthians, we have this treasure in clay pots. Let them see Christ in us. Yeah. Let them see Christ in us. He'll do the drawing. I think that's really, really cool how
3: as the grace of... God continues to out a out of Christians, how God like brings people into your life. Maybe, uh, I have a violent teacher who's not a Christian. Um, she is a Quaker and um, I did tell her about like Jesus once, but her being I guess a, a little more on the stubborn side about Christianity, she thinks of Christ. But because I see her every Thursday, she does seem to be getting, like, more hungry and hungry and hungry yeah. and hungry and it's really, really cool to see that, how God's been working in her. And yeah. I, that's all for a request, too, because I really want her
0: to. Yeah, every, every person that ran into Christ did not convert, right? But what did happen to some of them? They were drawn a little closer. They were amazed at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And listen to this. The kids really liked him, right? hmm now it takes a special person for kids to really like him. They liked him so much that the disciples tried to shoo him away, and Christ jumped on them and said, "No, let the let the children come to me." Right. That's the kind of man he was. We think of Christ as a stern, frowning, you know, kind of person. No, he wasn't. That's not what Christ is And so, what we need to do is, what kind of picture are we given of Christianity? Are we hate? Do we hate the world? Do we hate everybody in the world? Do we hate people? Do we hate sinners? Do we hate, 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 hate. No we need to exhibit the love of Christ so that they would be drawn to the Savior that we love we're not to be like them we're not to imitate when we start imitating the world they can't tell the difference we're to be different we're to act different we're to have different values there's a there's a movement in Christianity that says well if you want to reach people for Christ you need to be like them no that's no more that's like saying I want to reach drunk so I'm gonna learn to be drunk so I can reach drunks for Christ That doesn't make any sense. No, you, drunks expect you, drunks know when you're, when you're drunk and when you're not a drunk. And they don't respect you if you're a drunk trying to win them to the Christ. They respect you if you're not a drunk trying to win them the Christ. Don't, don't, you, don't need to, you don't need to go down and take on the, the world to reach the world. We're to be not of the world. And that's what it says in First John, right? We're not of the world. Love not the world, neither the things in it to be in the world, but not other. Yeah, you know, and again, when you're, the boat's in the water, that's great. When water's in the boat, you got problems. <laughs> all right? And it's not to isolate itself from the world. Th- this was the mon- monastic approach, right? And, and sometimes this is, uh, I want to put it in, uh, from my background, the hyper-fundamentalist background, where you got to avoid all the unbelievers. You know, we've got to stay away from that crowd. Um, I-, I remember some... Um, some preacher had a woman coming to the church that was you now going through a divorce having a rough time in her life but she wasn't wearing a dress so he told her she wasn't allowed to come to church unless she put a dress on because she was wearing slacks right. now now if I would have been there I'd slap that guy into the next time zone but <laughs> but it's like well now wait a minute you're telling me God's worried about a dress code no. necessarily come on but there's this idea that we gotta, we got to isolate ourselves because they'll contaminate us. You know, I want to tell you something. You're pretty contaminated all by yourself. <laughs> all right? You don't need any other buddy to contaminate you. We, we, need to, we need to be with the world. That's our mission field. If we're not exposed to those people, how do you reach them for Christ? If you become a Christian and you withdraw into your church and all you have are Christian friends and all you listen to is WCRF and all you do is isolate yourself from the world around you, how is it that you reach the people that are still in there? You don't. You've you got to be in the world, but you're not of the world. You can't isolate yourself from it. Now, that doesn't mean that you you know, buy into the world system. We're not talking about that. But we rub shoulders with people in the world. And how do they know what a Christian looks like if they're not around any? I know some people that say, well, I'm a Christian. It's really tough because of my job, man. I'm the only Christian there. Well, good. They got a Christian there, right? Now, if you leave there, what do they have? Nothing. Why did God put you there? To be a Christian, to be a witness, yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. Late, not in depth, but my sense of monasticism is not about isolation. The focus of monasticism is worship, prayer, and out of that focus has come much of the great the development of Christian thought.
0: There are so two. S- yeah, up, there's two sides to that.
2: to mm-hmm. try to remain holy and not be contaminated,
0: probably really wouldn't be accepted um, there there's is truly yeah there's a, there's a dual side there's a dual side there's some monastic traditions where the idea is we got to isolate ourselves the one movie i saw clips of that i really love is sister act remember that yeah. uh-huh. you know where they're all in the mo- you know, they're all in, in, in they're all behind their walls you know in the locked doors You know, it's like, well, what are you doing behind the walls and the locked doors? I mean, you got a whole society out there that is walking by the front of your church, and you're not even, you know, I'm not telling you to become a Catholic, but it's sort of a funny example of this. You know, we we get isolated in our own little Christian world. And I remember Howard Hendricks says, you know, I always want to be around some hells and dams. And the idea there is, I always want some unsafe friends in my life. Because how am I going to reach them for Christ if I don't have any? He says he did a study. The average Christian, the average person, when they come to Christ within three or four years. They don't have any unsafe friends. Do you have an unsafe friend in your life? People who are just rank pagans that you hang around with? That doesn't mean you drink with them, you take drugs with them, and all that. But do you have unsafe friends? Because how are they going to see the love of Christ if you're not with them? We need to be around them, not of them. And it's not to isol- we're not to isolate ourselves from the world. We have this mentality in Christianity sometimes to say, well, we've got to isolate ourselves from all this. We've got to get rid of the television. We've got to get rid of the radio. We can't get a newspaper. And you've got people having these virtual little monasteries or citadels in their house, and they want to keep the world out. It doesn't work that way. We need to be in the world, but we don't need to be of it.
2: Right.
0: Well, we got one slide done in 25 minutes. That's bad. Um, Positively, what is a church to do? What is the church to do? It's to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? We toss that around a lot. Glorify, glorify. The idea of glorify, draw attention to, adorn, make look good. What's our job as a church? To make God look good. So how do you make God look good? You act like him, right? You act like God. Right. And and by the way, the only way you can act like God is who's got to be doing it in you. The Holy Spirit, all right? So it's not you, it's the Holy Spirit within you that enables you to act like God. But we are to glorify God. We are to let the world see what God is like. And I hate to say this, but if the average person here, what, what do they see God like? If you ask the average pagan on the street tell me about God, and if they know any Christians, what would what they say about God? Probably something totally different than who God is. We don't do a good job of glorifying Him, do we? Of exhibiting His character, His grace. How do we do that? Well, we do that through prayer and praise, right? When you praise God when, and what does it mean to praise God? You just Thank him for the greatness that he is. You extol his majesty, his power, his creative abilities. I do it every morning when I go into work and I see a beautiful sunrise coming up over the horizon, and I look out on a winter day and I see the snow on the trees. And God's a God of beauty; He created all of this. So He's a beautiful God, and when you when you talk to God, and say, "Wow, look at what You made there!" that that gives Him joy and satisfaction because we appreciate it. We praise Him in our music. That's one aspect of worship, when we sing praises to him. When we pray, and the idea of prayer here, understand what prayer is. Prayer is conversation. It's not a laundry list. It's not you going to God like, you know, little kids at Christmas time when they sit on Santa's lap and they pull out their list, right? It's talking to God. To me, prayer in my life has become not, not, not me going with a list, but just talking to God. And when can you talk to God? All the time. That's what it means to pray without ceasing, folks. It doesn't mean you get on your knees and pray. It means that you're constantly in this conversational mode with God. You're you're talking to him. and I I like the picture of um, Enoch. What do you think Enoch did? He talked with God. He walked with God. That was what the... To me, that, that's one guy I want to really meet when I get to heaven. He talked with God. He walked with God. And one day God said, Ah, oh, just come on up to heaven and be done with it. You don't need to go back home. That would be sort of an interesting little uh, adventure there, I think. But we glorify God when we pray and we praise him. And I, I remember when Ellie was here, our German exchange student, and she went to the youth group. And she said one of the things that drew her to Christ that she, she saw there he said, she looked around when people were praying, and she watched their faces. And there was something there that she never saw before. She watched the faces of the students who were praying. Wow, that's interesting. Because she was taught that religion is a crutch. It's a, it's a fantasy. It's for weak people who need help. And when she saw there was a reality to the people's faces, that, that's something that drew her to Christ. We glorify God when we bear fruit. What does it mean to bear fruit? Talk about this way back when, but fruit has many, many um, uses. One is when we reach people for Christ. That's fruit, right?
1: Right.
0: And uh, another fruit is when we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. 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 So when people look at you, do they see someone who exhibits love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self control, or do they see obnoxity? The fruit of the spirit is that, right? Yeah, I do. Convicting isn't. It? No. <laughs> uh, when people look at you, are the, do they see someone who has who exhibits calm in troublesome times? Stock market is going up, down, everything, and you just exhibit calm because you know God is in control. Or when chaos is in your life, and they. Know that you're gonna have a chaotic life or some big trial in your life, and you exhibit the calm and the serenity of Christ, what does that tell them? There's some reality there. That's bearing fruit. That's that's what draws people to Christ. When they see you act like a Christian. And they see you with peace and joy and, and gentleness. What does it mean to be gentle? You're not abrasive. You you treat people with kindness. You treat people with courtesy. Are you a courteous Christian? That's a good one. When somebody cuts you off on the road, how do you respond? I respond better now than I used to. And i got to respond even better because Donna hears what I'm saying now, so i got to watch out. But, um, but we need to exhibit those graces. That's bearing fruit. Um, good deeds is bearing fruit, right? Any, any Fruit is anything that, that is a product of... Christ in us, and, and how do you bear fruit? We're going to look in a little bit, the, the vine and the branches. How does a vine bear fruit? How, how does a ba- branch bear fruit? Yeah, if you're not connected to the vine, you don't bear fruit. So can you bear fruit? Can you go and say, I'm going to bear fruit today? No. No. What do you need to do? You need to be in the vine. And this is the point. Understand this. If you concentrate on being in the vine... If you concentrate on your connection to Christ, what is going to be the natural byproduct of your life? Fruit. It's not something you oomph up on your own. It's something that is a byproduct of you dwelling in the vine. And what did Christ say? If you don't dwell in the vine, you can't bear any fruit. So if you're not in the vine, if you're not dwelling in the vine, if you don't have that connection to Christ, there's no fruit. And so if you want to bear fruit in your life, worry about your connection to Christ. Because the closer you're connected to Christ, the more those graces are exhibited in your life. We glorify God through giving. What does that mean? Well, not only money. We usually think money. That's a component of it. But what about your time? What about your energy? What about... All those other things. When people, when people talk about you, they say, "Ah, oh, he's a skin flint. He's a stingy person. Or they see you as someone who's gracious. Someone who, who is giving. Someone who gives of themselves. Um, gives of their time, their attention. You ever talk to somebody who's not listening to you? That's irritating, isn't it? Talking to somebody and their brain's off somewhere else and so they're looking around you. It's like, I'll come back when you can listen. You're not giving people attention. And this, this hits us in all kinds of aspects of our life. One thing I've done, I've started doing, I used to calculate the 10% tip at, at dinner, right? Well, right now, I'm up to the point where I give 20%, 21%, I don't know, something like that. You know, I'm generous, why? Because God's generous to me. You know, does God say, I'm just going to dole a little bit out of this to you, Schaefer. I'm just going to dole a little bit today. How does God treat us? With stinginess? With No, he treats us with grace upon grace upon grace. Learn to be giving. Learn to be kind. Learn to smile. Whenever I go into a restaurant, I always thank the waitress. Why? They have a tough job. You, ever, you want to have a tough job, be a waitress. Got all the cranky old people coming in, right? be gracious, be kind, smile, laugh. What Donna does, she calls them, she knows everybody by name, she calls everybody by name. You know, and I've seen people brighten up, their whole days brighten up by her just smiling at them. And uh, she's the only one that goes to, uh, to Sparkle Market and Grafton at Christmas time and walks out with presents. <laughs> One guy gave her a big doll, another guy, another person gave her some candles. I mean, she's always got, she, you know. But why, well, she talks to everybody. She treats them with love. She, she smiles, and it, it makes their day. That's what being a Christian is. Good night, you're not a sourpuss and a crab apple. And half the time, that's what we are. We walk around with a perpetual frown. Be smiling, be gracious, be giving, be kind. Be generous. When you go out for some friends once in a while, buy lunch. Just be, just learn to be gracious. Just learn to give. Um, through preaching and ministering, what does that mean? Preaching the word of God, proclaiming the truth of Christ, and ministering others. We glorify God when we help other people. That's one of the spiritual gifts. You know that it's a spiritual gift of the helps. Sometimes it's going over and cleaning somebody's house for them when they can't do it themselves. Maybe doing an oil change, or raking the leaves in the yard, or mowing the yard, or taking them someplace when they can't go. That's that's irritating because it's out of our way, right? It's it's an interruption. But when you look at life of Christ, one thing to find out about him, he was interruptible, right? Yeah.
1: He was yeah the one with the issue of blood. Uh
0: I was just hearing a sermon on that this week. The she interrupted. He was ministering, and she pushed through the crowd. And I like what Vance Havner says. He said, ladies don't do that unless there's a sale on at the department store. <laughs> they usually don't muscle through a crowd. But she muscled through a crowd. Why? Because she felt, if I could only touch him, mm-hmm. I'd be healed. And she was. And where was Christ headed to when she showed up?
2: He was going to heal Jairus'
0: daughter. Jairus's daughter. Yeah. He was interrupted. And that interruption, while, while he was dealing with the woman, what did the servants do? They came and said to Jairus, don't bother him, your daughter's dead.
1: She really
0: and Christ said, nah, she's just sleeping. He came there and healed her, raised her from the dead. He was interruptible. He, he could be interrupted. He was not one of these people that, you know, that a lot of times we have our schedule right. We're ready to go and we're, 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 we're headed in a direction. And we don't like interruptions. But sometimes God brings interruptions along just to say, hey, are you, are you cognizant of your surroundings? Are you cognizant that there are people along your way? I mean, the Samaritan on the way... Um, on his way, when he went by the guy that was beaten on the road, he probably had something to do, right? So but what did he do? There. He took care there was of a need. He yeah. stopped.
1: Right. The other two left. Oh. Yeah. They and I remember,
0: I love the story. I forget who said it, but there's a professor was given an exam at a Christian university, and what he did is he hired one of his friends to play a drunk, to pass out on the walkway that all the students had to go by to get to the test. And he just wanted to see what happened, and only one person stopped to help the drunk. All the rest of them, you know, they had to get to the exam to get their grade. Need to say, only one guy, I think, got an A on the exam that day. But are you interruptible? We don't like interruptions, do we? But are you interruptible in your life by reaching out to other people? That glorifies God. What does it do? It makes God look good. How do you make God look good? Because you're acting like him, right? Right?
3: Mm -hmm. And a lot of times he'll redeem that time. So not only am I going out to like go serve somebody, I'm blessed by doing that, and he teaches me stuff while I'm doing that. But then that time that I thought I lost somehow down the line and like coming back to me, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's just like he's like, if you just trust me and you serve for me, then I will make it worth your while in more ways than one. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's you know this is one of the things I've had to work with on in my life because I'm. I'm, a, not, I'm not a type double A, but I'm a little bit of an A. I'm more of an A than a B <coughs> a person. And I, I want to get things done, and you know, I, have a, I have goals, and I want to get there. you know. And I have these interruptions, and I had to learn to stop for interruptions. As Donna tells me once in a while, you've got to stop and smell the flowers. You've got to stop and smell the roses. You've got to stop and enjoy things along the way. And when you get so driven in your life... You don't see God's interruptions. Sometimes God brings those interruptions along. I remember a great illustration of this from Chuck Swindoll, and I have no—I can't remember the sermon he preached. I wish I could find the sermon that he preached this in. But he talked about how this this man and his son were going to go to the market, and they started out in the morning to get to the market. They wanted to sell their produce and all of that, and of course along the way, what's the old man doing? You know, he's. Stopping along the way, you know, enjoying the scenery, taking his time in the sun. Come on, Dad, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go, got to go. He says, Oh, come on, son, you need to stop. You need to smell the roses. You need to look around. You need to enjoy the day. Look at the beautiful day out. As they were going along, they saw a flash off in the distance. As they came over the rise, they looked down at what used to be the city of Hiroshima. And had they, you know, gone along, as the son did they would have been dead and I stood there and looked at in a sense I see what you mean dad sometimes God brings interruptions along and he wants to say how do you respond to the interruption I mean we talk about we want to be in the will of God well that's part of the will of God right is having interruptions mm-hmm. ordered by the Lord You know, we want God to use us. And so God says, okay, I'll I'll give you a test. I'll bring an interruption along. And we fail, right? Because we have bigger things to do. Now it's part of the disciples' problem too, right? They They wanted to do, do, do. And Christ is saying, no, you need to be. You need to be interruptible.
3: I guess what it's mm-hmm. called. Anyway, so she lives down there, and what she does is she reaches out to these kids and people who really don't have, I guess, um, that like that much food and everything else. And she has like this winter outreach. My friend, she went to oh, this winter outreach, and though they had like a ton of things to do in order to make this play for the kids in the area, they stopped for like two hours and they worshiped God, Mm -hmm. and then everything that they needed to do, I guess, which would have taken, if I remember correctly, about like two days or one day, they got it done with that in like three hours or two hours after they were done worshiping. Yeah,
0: that's that's what Robin was saying. God gives you the time back.
3: So that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, God gives you the time back. I mean, we are to be interruptible. We are to allow, it's sort of like Mary and Martha, right? Martha's running around; her hair's on fire. We got to get stuff done, you know. Mary, come on, help me. There's a meal to prepare. And what's Mary doing? She's over listening to Christ. And what did Christ say? You know, she's sowing the best thing. Be with God. Mm Mm-hmm. -hmm. A lot that can be going on without we are waiting, and we may not even be aware
2: that these changes or forces are moving to our bed. You know, when you you get stuck in line at Kmart, Mm -hmm.
1: probably not a bad thing,
2: but you look at it as, as a time to regroup and just rest.
0: I had a I had a little victory in my life this last week when I was going into Cleveland and I hit the 480 parking lot on I think it was Wednesday or something and uh, not normally I would have been all excited and angry and yelling at the truck and the idiots that slid off the road and everything else and it's like I didn't it was amazing I just took my time and got there when I got there, you know. There's nothing you can do about it. But you're right. Sometimes those, those waiting periods are necessary. I, you look at Christ. When he went around Palestine, he wasn't running like a chicken with his head cut off. He was not spastic. He was not, you know, freaking out because he needed to be somewhere. He got there when he got there. He was never in a hurry, but he was never late. All right. He always got there when the time was right. And especially when Lazarus died, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you'd have been here, you wouldn't have died. And Christ said, yeah, and you wouldn't have seen a resurrection either. So <laughs> sometimes we got to allow God to let us have those, those wait times, those interruptions, because he has a plan and a purpose. We uh, glorify God through loving. What does that mean? By caring for other people, by putting ourselves out for other people. What does it mean to love someone? It means to consider them more than yourself consider their needs more than your needs we live in a selfish society where it's all for us I want I want I want and what did Christ say think about others not your own self your own things well all we care about is ourselves we become a very self-centered cranky old individual you gotta look outside yourself you gotta consider others better than yourselves we glorify God when we acknowledge God's son as Lord, right? When we, when we truly acknowledge him as Lord. When somebody says, why are you doing that? He says, "Why well, have a relationship with Christ. Why are you ashamed of that? Why is it that we get frozen at the mouth when it comes time to do that? Just let people know. Tell them that you love Christ. That, and, and, and this is the thing. If you love Christ and you dwell on your connection to the vine, a lot of this stuff just sorts itself out in the back end. It sorts itself out as a byproduct of dwelling in the vine. Through believing in God's word, do you really believe God's word? You glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to display his character, okay? So did God ever lie? No, he hasn't, right?
1: No.
0: So if he says something in his word, is it true or False. So why don't you believe it? We need to believe it, right? We glorify God when we take God at his word. What was the thing that caused those people in Hebrews 11 to have great faith? What gave Abel great faith? Why did he wind up with his name engraved on the faith's hall of fame? What was it about Abel that made him a man of faith? He believed God, right? And what did God say? Bring a lamb. Okay, I'll do that. I'll bring a lamb. And he brought a lamb. Um it's nothing more than believing God. It's nothing more than taking God at His Word. He says something, I believe it, I'm gonna go for it. How did Noah please God? Well he just did what God said build a boat. Okay, I'll build a boat. That's fine. Abraham, how did he wind up there? Well, God told him, "I want you to go to a nation." Okay, I'll leave. I'll pack up and I'll leave. It's nothing more than just doing what God says. That's that brings glory to God when you honor Him Obey and God. when you, yeah, stepping and, and out in faith. yeah, stepping out in faith. And here's the thing to understand about obedience: Does God want the best or the worst for you? He wants the best. For you. He wants the best. So the obedience I give to God is not an onerous obedience in the sense that I really don't want to do it and I'm going to hate it and he's just trying to be mean to me because he's trying to make me do something I really don't want to do. No, that's not God. That's not what God is all about. God wants the best. And if you obey God, you get the best. It just
2: occurred to me, more clearly than it ever has,
4: that the best is not... It, it, best based upon the what in other words the able sacrifice wasn't technically naturally better than Cain's sacrifice it was the obedience the widow's might wasn't nearly as much money as the Richard but hers was the best because it was the, the obedience it was she gave a greater proportion I mean, if, if I give a tithe every Sunday of a million dollars and I'm a billionaire, big deal. But if I give a dollar because I'm absolutely impoverished, that's more, that's the best.
0: Mm-hmm. God's always asking, why not what? That's right. Why do you do it not what do you do? Through our suffering. Oh, you glorify God through suffering? We don't like that word, that's word. And in fact, in some Christian circles, if you suffer, what's wrong? Sin. Well, you don't have enough faith. You, you haven't sufficiently gained victory over Satan. You've not defeated him. You've not called down the word or whatever, whatever, whatever. And it goes on. Look, folks, suffering is a normal part of our existence. And all of us are going to suffer in different ways. You might as well just go with it because that's what's going to happen. But our suffering has an eternal Purpose, right? God has something beyond it. And just because you suffer doesn't mean you're not a Christian. In fact, sometimes suffering means you are a Christian. But Peter says it very clearly here. Why is it that we should suffer? Why? Do you suffer because you're a thief? Because you're a murderer? Because you're an evildoer? Because you're a political agitator? Is that why you suffer? By the way, that's what the word there is, political agitator in Peter. Is that why you suffer or you suffer because you're just a Christian? Make sure you suffer for the right reason. I've known Christians who are obnoxious and they get in trouble and then they talk about how they're suffering for Jesus. No, you're not suffering for Jesus. You're suffering because you're obnoxious. That's why you're suffering. What if Peter said, yet if any man suffers a Christian let him glorify God. Why is it that you suffer? Do you suffer because you love Christ? because you're drawn to him, because you care about him. And I'm, I think that's what Paul says. I want to understand the fellowship of his suffering. Did he suffer for what he did wrong? No, he suffered because of what we did wrong. And we see suffering as this nasty, evil, bad thing. Look, it's part of this life, and it's going to be passing, right? Mm-hmm. What did Paul say in, for, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Our light affliction, which is but for a moment. moment. You say, well, my moment's been going on for 30 years. Well, compare that to eternity. What's your affliction? It's gone. You're not going to even remember that when you get over there. We glorify God when we suffer because here's the thing. Here's the thing to understand. When you suffer and you exhibit the grace and character of God, what is that telling everybody around you? There's something real there. There's something genuine there. See, when you're when when you're glorifying God when you're living in a bed of roses and you've got all the money in the world and all the influence and you're healthy and wealthy and good looking and all that kind of stuff, and I mean that that's what the world understands, right? But what about when you don't have that? What about glorifying God when things aren't going your way, when life's a little tough, when you have physical ailments or physical diseases or things like that.
2: Guess when we depend on them more.
0: Yeah. I remember Donna Remember some people asking her about her hearing when she couldn't hear. And, you know, they said, well, why don't you go try to get healed? Why don't you? The, the idea there is if you've got a hearing, you should go get healed. Why don't you go get healed, you know? And she says, "Well, she said, I think God made me this way because it made me what I am." She, she said, "I'd probably been a wild woman had he not taken my hearing." She said, "I don't know what I would have been. I'd have been a wild woman or something. You know, I can't imagine her being a wild woman." But the whole point there is that it's interesting when I was talking about it. She never considered hearing as suffering. It was just oh, that's part of life. Was it irritating? Yeah. Was it? But it, it wasn't something to be focused on. We don't focus on our suffering. Christ, I mean, Paul went through sufferings, but he didn't gripe about it. He didn't complain about it. And yet whenever we as Christians suffer in our modern society, we think there's something wrong. I've got to get through it. I've got to get over it. I've got to get rid of it. I gotta. Well, maybe suffering is part of your way of exhibiting Christ. Because when people look at you and they know you're suffering, they know you're going through a bad time, but you exhibit love and character and grace in spite of that suffering, what is that telling them about God? He's real. Yeah. Wow. I wish I could handle. I wish I could bear up under that trial.
4: That's the Katie story. People breaking out in praise all over the place in the worst of worst because yeah. at best was the worst,
0: mm-hmm.
4: and now it's worse than worst, and they are praising God
0: down there. Yeah, and here's the other thing about suffering. It's all it's all relative, isn't it? You know, I look around and I say, Boy, I'm suffering because I don't have a brand new car. Well, I have a car. Got a car. Right? Yeah. It's all relative. Be fancy, right? I'm suffering because uh, I don't have all the things that my society says I should have. Well go to Haiti. Mm-hmm. If you got clothes on your back, that's a plus. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: It all depends on your perspective. And don't get hung up on this world. We glorify God through our witnessing. What does it mean to witness? To just tell people about Christ. To exhibit in your life and tell them with your words. And see, here's the thing. It just hit me a long time ago. When everybody looks at me, they're either going to be moved towards God or away from God. I'm going to have an influence on them. That influence is going to be to move them towards Christ or it's going to be to move them away from Christ. And the question I have to ask myself is, what kind of influence do I want to be? Do I want to be one that brings people towards Christ, that, draw, that sort of pushes them his way? Or do I want to act in such a way that I drive a wedge in between them and God? And I do that through witnessing it. It doesn't mean I always are there, I'm always there when they make a commitment to Christ. Sometimes it's just moving them a little bit along the path. What did Paul, what did Paul write in 1 Corinthians? Well, I forget, a palace planted, and somebody watered, and God gave the increase. Uh, we're all part of that process.
2: Like we can witness to somebody, and then somebody else come along, and they'll be led to Christ. Yeah. But we, we plant the seed.
0: But sometimes we say, if I can't go for the kill, I'm not going to say anything. Well, just bring them along. There's something called the law of seven touches, I think, it, if I remember way back when I was taking evangelism, where a per, the average person hears the message of Christ at least seven times before they respond. That's just averages. All right? And um, just bring them closer. It's to love God. Do you love God? I mean, do you really love him? That's our purpose. And what does it mean to love God, to put him first, to think of him first, to give him honor? We say, I love God, but then we don't spend time with him. Is that love?
1: No.
0: If you say, I love God, but I don't talk about him. If I tell you I love my wife but I never talk about her, do I love her as far as you're concerned? Not really. I mean, if you love someone, you're going to talk about them. You're going to want to spend time. Here's one. If you love someone, you spend time with them, right? You spend time with them. We are to evangelize the world. This is important. That's That's our duty. What did Christ say? Go ye therefore and make disciples. By the way, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Mm -hmm. there's only one verb. Mathetusite, to make a disciple. That's the verb. How do you make a disciple? What's the process of making disciples? Well, you need to evangelize them, right? right? You need to go. You need to teach, right? You need to baptize, right? So that they can be a reduplicator. They can duplicate and make other bat, uh, believers. It's to make a disciple. Our, sometimes people say, well our, my job in the church is to just evangelize them, then you leave them alone. There, there are churches that do that. You know, get them to walk the aisle, sign the card, they're in, fine, next victim, and they're off to somebody else.
1: Oh,
0: you decide, well that's like having a baby and bring the baby home from the hospital. I'll say, kid, you know, milk's in the fridge, you know, Bathroom's over there. Diapers are in. Un- so take care of yourself, kid. Have at it. See you in about 16 years. I mean, come on. What do you do? You've got to take care. You, you, there's a care. A that's making a disciple. That's, that's what the job is. And that's what I love about our church. It's to lead people in the adventure of becoming like Christ. That's to make a disciple. That's the modern way of saying, we're here to make a disciple. Now, so how do you make a disciple? Well, you've got to bring them. They've got to believe. You've got to make them belong. So that's part of the B's, the five B's. But the job is to make a disciple. That's what we're here for.
3: Not only should grace be extended to those who do not believe, but it should also be extended to the new believers when it comes to discipling them. Mm-hmm. If you are are still trying to point out every single thing that they're doing wrong, even oh, while a, they're still a baby, they can kick you Yeah, back.
0: That's a really good point. I like that. Part of Part of extending grace is when... When somebody is a new Christian, a new believer, those of us who have been down the road a ways, right, we don't have a lot of patience for new believers, do we? You need to let them grow up, let them mature, right? When you bring that baby home from the hospital, you don't expect that baby to act like a sixteen-year-old. No. It's not yet time.
1: <laughs> you don't want that. You know? <laughs> Yeah. You, you, want,
0: you want the child to grow and mature. It's the same thing in a Christian life. And one of the things that, that I've had to understand in my life is you know, I've been a Christian now for 42 years, somewhere around in there. Um, I can't expect somebody who's been a Christian for 42 days or 42 minutes to think and act like me, right? I can't do that. Not that I've got at all the right answers, you understand. But the point is we need to allow them time to grow and to mature and to, to exhibit the grace when they're struggling with things and not say, well, what's wrong with you, you know? I've, I solved that problem 35 years ago. Well, yeah, but it took you a little while too. But see, you've forgotten how you struggled with that. Let them grow up. Let them mature. That's part of, part of the process of teaching them to observe all things. That's part of it, teaching and the idea of baptizing there does not mean you dunk them in the water. The idea of baptizing there is what do you make them part of? The church. Yep. You bring them assimilation. Make them part of the church. You teach them to observe all things. You baptize them, you make them part of the assembly. You have to go, you have to teach, you have to baptize to make a disciple. And really, the, those are participial phrases in Matthew 18. So it says, going Teaching, baptizing, make a disciple. The going, the teaching, the baptizing is part of the process. It's not the end. The end product is not to get them to sign a card, you say, "Woo, you're on your way to heaven, fine, I can go worry about somebody else. No, it's to then take that person and bring them along the process, to make a disciple of them. And it takes time to do that, and it takes patience to do that. And some of us who've been Christians for a long time, we just sort of slap our head and say, what's wrong with that person? Don't they get it? Well, let them mature. Let God, as long as they are growing, right? Yeah. Now, Now the, the flip side of that is a problem. If somebody's been a Christian for 40 years and they haven't gotten anywhere. That's a problem. But let God bring them along. And, and you don't need to, I love the way it's put, you don't need to beat them on the head, new Christians on the head, with a bunch of rules and regulations and all that kind. Help them to mature and grow in the Christian faith. And all that stuff, that'll take care of itself. That'll work its way out as, the, as you go along. It's the baptized believers. What do we mean by that? To make them part of the church. To identify themselves with the local assembly. It's to instruct believers. That's what we're doing now, right? What, what's part of the church? To give instruction. To teach the word of God. And, and hopefully you'll understand, I'm not up here giving you my opinions on this stuff. That's why there's Bible verses on this thing. Because that's what God's saying. It's not me. It's not my ideas. It's his ideas. But to instruct believers, where, where do you get instruction? You get it from the church who is there to instruct you and to help you and to help you grow. And it's to edify believers. What does that mean? To build you up. To encourage you. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged to be around other Christians. I can't imagine living my life outside of a church. Just doing my own thing. I need the mutual encouragement. It, it thrills me. When I, when I sit in a service and I hear somebody's testament of how they come to know the Lord, I almost start crying. That's not a very macho thing to do, but, you know, that's what it's about.
2: It touches you.
0: It touches us. It yeah. builds us up. It, it's to encourage one another. And we are to encourage one another. And there are people that struggle in life. Where do you get the energy to go through the next week? You go to the church where you've got other believers who are praying for you, who are encouraging you. That's part of body life. That's part of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. All right, we're going to have to stop there and pick up next week, and hopefully we'll get through this stuff. But hopefully it's important. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day you've granted, and I pray that you would just uh, help us to ponder these things, help us to be part of your body and to exhibit your grace to those around us, help us to be examples and Help us to uh, draw people to you. Help us to have a positive influence on them in our lives and the people we run into so that we may glorify you and make you look good. In Christ's name, amen.